And now, ladies and gentlemen, check it out. You've got to start somewhere. The podcast that takes you behind the scenes of show business to prove there's no such thing as an overnight success. With your host, Rachel Corbett. Welcome to the show. Today, I am chatting with comedian, actor, TV and radio host, and the man who, in my mind, has no full name. It's Lemo. <laughs> right. I cannot believe that your name is Anthony Lehman. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people are shocked by that. I, well, some people go, what's your real name? And I go, Anthony. They go, oh, Anthony Lemo. And I go, no, no, it's Anthony Lehman. And then there's this disappointed light bulb <laughs> moment where they go, oh. <laughs> so Lemo's like a nickname. From Have people you... were expect, uh, hoping for something exotic. Have you been called Lemo since you were young? Or was this something that happened in showbiz when you thought I need a stage yeah. name? <laughs> you know what? It happened uh, when I went to boarding school. Because I arrived at boarding school without a nickname. Or I had a nickname back home in the country that I very happily left behind. What was it? <laughs> it was a nickname that my oldest brother gave me as a kid, Turd. Because <laughs> he said I was a little shit, right? So he called me Turd. And it caught, it stuck. Everyone in the community. Right? What, like or ev- everyone in the community? Everyone. Or just, <laughs> to like... the point where, true story, I was <laughs> okay. home a couple of weeks ago and, you know, it's bumping into lots of people in the community. And I had grown adults in their 60s, 70s calling me Turd. No. Not many, but a couple. Still, to this day. You know, that's a really great way when people get into show business and they go, I just like to go home to just get back down to my roots, you know, to get down from the clouds. Yeah. Nothing takes you down oh, from yeah. the clouds like somebody going, hey, turd. <laughs> it's so strange. Anyway, my mum hated it. Mm. Like, really, it made her angry bet, whenever she heard it. So she really stomped on it whenever people said it in front of her. And dad was never super keen on it. But then I got to boarding school and they said, have you got a nickname? And I said, no. And they went, oh, Lemo. Lemo I will said, do. Great. Okay. Were you a funny kid when you were little? I was a big joke teller. Mm. Massive. And I had an incredible capacity to remember jokes. Like I could go to our football club on a Saturday night and tell jokes for three hours. And I was quite good at it. So I would find groups of adults who'd want to hear my jokes. And often they would want to hear them because I was pretty good at telling them. And I was really good at remembering them. Yeah. Uh, so I was kind of a joke teller. Yeah. I guess it's interesting because you either go sort of one of two ways. Either you are just sort of in that conversational moment, the funny person that knows how to pick up, which is certainly yeah. a skill that you have too, or there's the sort of joke teller. And that's a real skill in and of itself, if nothing else, just from a memory capacity. Yeah. yeah. I hear a joke once, forget it. You'll never hear it from me again because <laughs> it's gone. I can't do it. Now I'm hopeless. Like, I really? really struggle to remember jokes now. But back then, I just had, my mind was a steel trap. So we would often find ourselves in, you'd be in a joke circle, maybe around a bonfire, you know, you know <laughs> where, and everyone was trying to one-up each other with just someone to tell a joke. Oh, that reminds I've got one, I've got one. Yeah, right. Uh, so I used to really love telling jokes. When did the sort of idea of maybe doing that for a job or getting up and doing stand-up or giving that a crack form in your mind? It never occurred to me that this was something that I could do for a living or professionally. Mm. And how it started, it was I was 24 and a mate of mine in Adelaide said to me, hey, there's comedy on down at this venue in Adelaide. I'm like, really? Like live comedy? And he goes, yeah. I said, oh, cool. I'll come with you. So we went down on a Thursday night to Bolt's Cafe on Rundle Street in Adelaide. And we saw this show and it just blew my mind. It was so funny. Mm. But even then, it never crossed my mind. I always looked at 
people doing stand-up and thought, well, that's what you do. That's not what I do. Yeah, I'm right. this kid from the country. Because the community I was raised in, I say community like some sheltered joint. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the commune. A- the yeah. area that I was raised in, everyone was, you could never get ahead of yourself. Yeah, and right. like, no bloody big head bullshit around here, mate. Not you, with a name like Turd. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't, there'll be no dreams around here, okay? Let's just keep a lid on it. No fancy bullshit. You either become an accountant at best. Yeah. Maybe you'll be a teacher yeah. or a nurse. There'll be no doctors. There'll be no bloody doctors around here. So your dream, they really put a lid on your dreams. Mm. Now, it meant that everyone was very modest and mostly really nice, but it meant no one really had big dreams outside. So that was the environment that I grew up in. So even looking at people on stage, I never thought, well, that's, I'm not going to do that. Mm. I was an accountant at the time mm. as well. And then we went back the next week and we went back the next week. We just loved watching it. And then the next time we went, I was with my mate, Popey, who I'd been with every week. And his sister, Anne-Marie, was there. And at the end of the show, the MC Charlie Hill Smith, said, if there's anyone in the audience who wants to have a go, come and let us know and we'll get you up next week. So Anne-Marie walked over to Charlie all these people are still really good friends of mine, and said, uh, my friend Lemo will get up next week. He said, great, I'll write his name down. And then Anne-Marie came to me and said, you're on next week. And what? I said, what are you talking about? She said, I'll put your name down. You're on. You're getting up on stage. And I said, are you serious? And she said, yeah. And I went, oh, my God, I can't do it. And she goes, no, you have to do it now. Put your name down. And then I went away and wrote a five-minute spot. And that was my first gig. How was that process of writing a five-minute spot? Because when it's something you haven't thought about before, where do you even start? Well, you know what? It came really easily to me for some reason. Because I lived with three mates, we'd always had funny conversations about things in our lives. Mm. And my first ever routine, I still remember it, it was about when you'd start dating someone and you don't fart in front of them. And you, you hold your farts in yep. with someone new. And I went through this whole routine about, you know, how I'd fart in front of my friends. And then she comes over and then you hold your farts in <laughs> and blah, blah, blah. And it was quite a well-constructed piece because I remember the punchline to it all was that I farted in my sleep. I said, oh, I'm sorry. I don't know what happened there. And she said, what are you talking about? You've been doing it since the first day we met. Right. Uh, <laughs> anyway, and it killed. It absolutely killed. And yeah. I was hooked. And that was that it. Moment. Yeah. That's really a lucky moment to have from the start. Because no doubt, yeah. That's my, as you're about to find out with television and radio, that's been my life. None of my path of the main things I've done was ever pre-planned. None of it. And I've always felt kind of guilty about that. Mm. Like I've never sat down and set goals and then gone and achieved them. Things have just fallen in my lap. Wow. <laughs> and I read a quote recently from Colin Hay, where, which I really connected with, which I put in my book. When Colin Hay says, I never made a plan. I just followed the path in front of me. And that's kind of my vibe as well. I guess a lot of that has to do with fate, if you believe in it, but also Mm. certain talent that you obviously have naturally that steers you in a kind of direction, you know? Yeah, well, I guess there was something pushed Anne-Marie to go and put my name down. Mm. And maybe if she had never have put your name in the hat, you might never have stepped up to do it. I'd still be an accountant So high fives, (laughs) Anne-Marie. Thank you, (laughs) Anne-Marie. Well, you did spend 10 years as an accountant. When you were a kid, was I'm assuming that accounting wasn't the great dream. Did you have any (laughs) dreams as a kid 
Well, I wanted to play footy for Hawthorne. Right. Yeah, or cricket for Australia. Were you any good at either of those sports? Uh, I was a pretty good footballer. Like, I played under-19s for West Adelaide in the SNFL. Mm-hmm. Won their best and fairest, don't want to talk about <laughs> it. Uh, <laughs> but here's the trophy. <laughs> <laughs> and I played a few reserves games for West Adelaide as a 17-year-old. Yeah, right. You know, I was pretty good, but then I just got lazy and started boozing and... Chasing so, girls and getting distracted. Why was it accounting the thing that you decided to do after school? You know what? Because that's what my dad thought would be good for me and my mum did as well. Mm-hmm. Their accountant had a nice car. So <laughs> <laughs> they thought that would be a good direction for me to go in. Did you, because you did it for a long time before you got into showbiz, yeah. did you enjoy it at any point through that time? Look, I never particularly loved it. I mean, I worked in insolvency for starters here, which is just not a fun no. business. Good no one's Lord. ever happy to see you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's Thanks a real, for... it's a real double whammy. You're an accountant, <laughs> which no one's interested in, and secondly, even on the job, yeah, people hate seeing. You. Yeah, you only turn up when everything's falling apart. It's <laughs> exactly. like, oh god. Yeah. Um, uh, and then when I and I moved to London, and in London I worked for Deutsche Bank and Citibank for eighteen months each. Uh, and those jobs I didn't mind because they enabled me to earn good money to have a really fun few years in London. Were you doing stand-up at that, at that point in yes, time? Yes, yeah. So I started here and then I moved to London. So I was working the bank during the day and I was going to gigs at night. When did the Red Faces appearance happen? <laughs> Red Faces <laughs> was probably my seventh or eighth gig ever. Gee, that's really yeah. chucking yourself so, in the deep so end. So I thought that after seven gigs, I was ready for a national television <laughs> audience of about four million people. <laughs> I mean, and I honestly went into that Red Faces so chock full of confidence. Like I thought, well, I'm going to win this. I've been watching Red Faces. It's terrible. <laughs> and little did I know that I would I would maintain that theme. Because <laughs> you got a zero from Red? I got a that... zero from Red. I got one from Sophie Formica and uh, David Dixon from Indecent Obsession. Gave me a five. Good on oh, him. <laughs> if I see him, I'll shake his hand. Uh, Do you think, though, because I think that having failure early, and not that that was a huge failure, but just a small oh, bit was, of a... It was a pretty big failure. <laughs> It was a pretty big fight. I came third. I was beaten by a Paraguayan woman doing a traditional dance whilst balancing a pot in her head. Uh, I mean, could the indignity be any greater? But don't you think those little knocks to your confidence are important? Because you have to learn the the lesson yeah. that not every gig is you stepping out and killing with the fart gag. Yeah. Like, yeah, you have totally. to learn that lesson. You do. And a lot of comedy and entertainment really is about resilience Mm -hmm. and if you don't have that resilience you're not going to be a stayer in the industry and people have said to me so many times over the years friends very well-intentioned friends Mm. say mate why do you keep doing it because I've had plenty of times where I could have easily just gone nah this is not like after red faces for example Mm. like that was how did you feel after that I was embarrassed by it but I just didn't, I never really let it bother me too much. I've got, I'm fairly unflappable as an individual. I'm able to put that behind me and just go, well, that's, that's that. That was terrible, but I'll move on. That's it's important. Same, it's the same as horrible gigs. I'll live with them for a little while, but then I'll move on. Like Red Faces isn't a thing. I think more about my Adelaide University semi-final loss against Kilburn in the amateur league. <laughs> 
and a goal I missed in the last quarter <laughs> than I do about red faces. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it sort of pales into insignificance. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, all of those all of those fails along the way are really important lessons. And I always think with comedy or radio or TV or whatever, the most important thing out of a fail is to understand why you failed. And if the conclusion at the end of it is because this just isn't for me and I'm no good at this, then it's time to move on. But that's never been my conclusion. My conclusion's always been I didn't prepare. I didn't think about what the audience, the audience environment would have been. I was lazy in the lead up. I'd had a big night the night before and I'd had bugger all sleep and I just wasn't in the right frame of mind. Mm. But if everything else is perfect and the conclusion is you're just no good at this, then it's time to move on. But that's a good lesson to learn, I think, because early when you realise, if you do have a bit of cockiness about you, nobody that's lasted in the business, you realise after you've been there a long time, isn't a hard worker who doesn't put in the yeah. effort and really, you know, so when you sort of think, oh, I've got this, I'll just walk out on stage, I'll get pissed the night before, it doesn't matter, I'll nail it. <laughs> it's sort of a good lesson to go, right, yeah. Preparation. Yeah, we we need to, (laughs) you know, we need to work hard here. Even, you know, Michael Gidinski told us a story on radio about Bruce Springsteen. He played two nights in a row at Amy Park in Melbourne. Friday night, Tom Morello's on stage, as he was for that whole tour, and Eddie Vedder turned up on stage. Guest spot. They all sing together. They went out that night and had a massive night. Mm. And the next night, Bruce Springsteen was not in his best form. Now, you probably wouldn't have noticed in the crowd because he's such a pro. But the concert was a bit shorter than normal. He left out a couple of his classic hits. And that concert, if you go to Bruce Springsteen's website, every concert is available for download. Every concert. Every concert ever. Except that one. Wow. So even the boss had a big night and went, I've let myself down. And he hasn't got that concert up on the website. We all make mistakes. So you're still prone, no matter how huge you are, to making these crazy mistakes. When you were saying that writing the first gig came easy to you, how about when you were up there on stage? Did that feel, I know the joke killed, but did you mm. feel super comfy? Like I, is... I was so energized by the crowd. Like I just can still remember that feeling. It was like, I was just on the greatest high ever. And you like knew this... what to do? Did it feel? I, you know what? I had been, I read now when I think back on it, cause I'd been telling jokes for so mm. long. I kind of understood structure innately from telling jokes. Yep. So just ride this little bit out here, leave a pause here for the punchline. So I, I <clears throat> from years of joke telling, I think a lot of that would just sat naturally within me. And I ran, I constructed a pretty good piece, even though it was about farting. <laughs> <laughs> Structurally, it was a pretty good bit of stand up for the yeah, first yeah. bit that I ever wrote. Had you done performance as a kid at all or? No. No? Just no. the joke telling but just no real drama telling. or any no. of that sort of stuff? No, none of that. When you made the decision to do something like Red Faces, was it like, oh, well, I'm doing comedy at nights. This is sort of interesting. I'll give this a crack. Or were you literally trying to think, how can I crack into this in some kind of professional way? You know, the, the Red Faces, the true story of Red Faces. <laughs> <laughs> do, do we want to hear it? Yes, we do. <laughs> I got, this is a long time ago, deep regret of mine, I got caught drink driving. Really? In 1994. And I went to court and I got fined $500, which is the minimum. I was just over the limit. There's mm. a minimum $500 fine. And I was in, at work complaining to a workmate. I said, oh, God, I've been fined 500 bucks. I don't know where I'm going to get that. And he says to me, you know, first prize in red faces is 500 bucks. You, you could go on red faces <laughs> and you'll win and that'll pay your drink driving fine. 
And I said, oh, what a stroke of genius. <laughs> That's it? And that set the ball in motion uh, for me to go on Red Faces. That's the reason yeah. you went on Red Faces, yeah, to, to pay, pay back a drink. <laughs> Talk about karma. I ended up winning $100. That is great. For third place. Oh, that's even better than you thinking that that was going to be a strategic move. That's the best reason for going on Red Faces ever, to pay a drink driving charge. What What about, I do love a bit of guest crossover, and there is a bit of guest crossover from one of my previous guests, Sam Mack, and yeah. yourself, because you both applied for the SAFM competition, Who Wants to Be a Co-Host on Air? Correct, yes. Um, and he won that competition. He did. However, he, he did say that it partly was because he worked in a call centre at the time and he got all of the middle-aged women yeah. who walked in the, worked in the call centre just It was call. on a big sign in the call centre. <laughs> if you've got a spare moment, please call this number and vote for Sam Mack. Yes, which is very tactical. But you were already... At what point did that come in the timeline? So that was in... I was still working as an accountant, but I was about to quit. So that was July 2001 that particular competition Mm -hmm. and first prize was to go to the Edinburgh Festival with Amanda Blair uh, and I think uh, no it wasn't James Brayshaw it was Richard Marsland at the time ah yeah so that was that was first prize so they did two weeks uh, and they said 10 people one person each day and I was on the third day and as I said yeah I still work as an accountant and I had a really good spot but I've been doing stand-up for kind of eight years by then Mm. so I knew my way around a joke and I knew how to tell a story and I listened up to the next Thursday. I, at the risk of sounding like I'm getting ahead of myself, really thought I was so much better than everyone else because everyone else is just yeah. average listener without any uh, professional storytelling experience. And then Sam Mack bobbed up on day 10 and wrote a song and oh, all this pathetic <laughs> sucking up that he did. Uh, and anyway, He's so and, good at that. And then, yeah, and then <laughs> Sam won the trip to uh, Edinburgh. So was that, surely that, that wasn't to pay a drink driving charge applying for that. No. That was you trying to sort of crack into the Correct, biz. yeah, yeah. I just, that was, seemed to me like something that would be a fun experience. I wanted the prize, right. which was the trip to Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. I was not interested in radio at all. Really? Yeah. So it was the prize that I was fascinated by. Yeah, radio was, I was never, radio never came into my radar so as a it, thing to do. So even when you're doing that, uh, applying for that competition, you're still thinking, I'm the accountant. I just want to go to Edinburgh. I'm going to be an accountant for the rest of my life. I'll oh, do comedy I, at night. I was planning on quitting. So I was only two months away from quitting accounting to be a full-time stand-up. Oh, so you were going to not just quit that job. You were going to quit it, the whole thing, quit the whole accounting thing and just yeah, be yeah. a stand-up. and be stand-up. <sighs> uh, so I quit on the 21st of September, 2001, mm. my accounting job and became a full-time stand-up. So is that because you were doing well at... at yeah, I was, I was doing well and, you know, to be honest, I probably should have quit about five years earlier. Right. But so then I just went on the road. So then I was just a touring comic. But you did get a job out of that SAFM competition anyway, didn't you? No. So what happened is uh, I was touring for about two years, stand-up. So I was bit, spent quite a bit of time in London, touring around Australia... I was back in Adelaide and uh, Marty Sheargold was doing the SFM breakfast show. So he rang me. I rang him back in Adelaide and said, let's catch up. So we're going to have a coffee. He said, I've got a gig tonight. Why don't you come down to the gig? I said, sure. So I watched Did you know him from comedy? Yeah. yeah, So we'd known Mm -hmm. each other for a while. Uh, So I watch his gig. I walk into the green room afterwards. And as I step into the green room, there's this, I hear this girl go, oh, Limo, how are you? And I turn, I go, Karen. And it was a girl I dated in year 11 at school. Oh, wow. So anyway, I, so I chat with her for a while. It's all great. Anyway, see you later. Bye-bye. She leaves 
And unbeknownst to me, she is the wife of Craig Bruce. Oh, really? Right? So they're driving home, who's the program director. Yeah. And Craig Bruce says to her, uh, Marty Sheargold's leaving. I'm sick of all these interstate comedians coming to town. They always want to go home again. I don't know what to do. And she says, why don't you give the job to Limo? He's from Adelaide. He's a comedian. And he goes, oh, that's not a bad idea. So Craig talks to Marty Sheargold, who gives me a huge pump up. Then Craig Bruce rings me and says, do you want to do the SAFM breakfast show? And I go, yeah, I guess. So, so <laughs> or because of a girl you dated in year 11. In year 11, yes. Jeez, you picked her well. <laughs> I, I know. So just this weird, again, Not it was never a goal of mine to do radio. So what when you went in there, again, obviously you've had a lot of stand-up experience, you've had a lot of storytelling experience. Yeah. I can imagine sitting behind the mic, you've kind of got the nuts and bolts of it down. A little bit, yeah. And then Craig was amazing when I first started. Like we had... I know people bristle at air checks, but he air checked me every day and I was forever grateful for it because he gave me so many, I mean, he's a very sharp radio mind and he gave me so many great radio tips and really sharpened my act immensely over that first three months. So you went straight into Brecky. That was your first job. Yeah. Wow. But get this, I've got but the best story attached to this. Please. So I get a job in breakfast radio, but I had no appreciation for how lucky I was really. Mm. And I was touring doing stand-up. I mean, I had four months of gigs booked in London coming up. I was going to have to cancel these gigs. And I was like, yeah, it's a radio thing. Anyway, the first week was going to be with Marty Sheargold and Amanda Blair, the three of us, Mm -hmm. as a handover week. And then Marty was going to leave. So the Sunday night before my first ever shift, I think, you know, just down the road is a pub where Brett Lee's band is playing. They're called Six and Out. I thought, I'll go watch them. That'll give me something to talk about on radio tomorrow. Of course, you've got to mine your life for stories. (laughs) That's it. So I'm at the General Havelock Hotel in Adelaide and my phone rings and it's Craig Bruce. And he says, hey, Limo, we actually won't get you on air tomorrow. We'll just get you in to watch the show and then you'll get a bit of a feel for it and see what's going on. So I go, oh, I'm not on air. He goes, yeah, but if you can still come in at 5.30 and, you know, the pre-show meeting. So, yeah, sure. So then I think to myself, and I can't believe this story, by the way, now. I'm telling it, and I still can't believe it as I share each mm. bit of the story. Right? Mm. So I think to myself, oh, well, I can have a drink then. I get blind. blind. <laughs> and I go out, and I get home at about 3 a.m. and don't even set my alarm. And I wake up at 11.30. Oh, Lemo. <laughs> right? No. And I look at my phone, and I've got like 15 missed calls. And um, I think, oh, well, I'll give him a call. And I just, I honestly just didn't even care that much because I had such little appreciation for what an incredible opportunity I'd been offered. And uh, so I ring Craig and he goes, "Uh, what happened to you this morning? And despite what had happened, I had given no thought to a cover story. So I just told him the truth. And I said, I just went out last night, got really blind and just slept through the show. And there was this silence on the other end of the phone. And he says... Ah, okay. At least you're honest, I guess. Are you going to come in tomorrow? I said, yeah, yeah, I'll see you tomorrow. And no. then I went in the next day. And that was it? That was it. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> you were kissed on the you-know-what oh. you were. I still can't believe it when I... It's crazy. So how long did you do that breakfast show for? Uh, I did that breakfast show for four years. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. 
Yeah. I didn't know that you did that for so long there because yeah. I think the first time we, did you then, then I transfer went. across to do Triple M with yes. Sydney with Will? Yes. Because that's where I met you because you were yes. working with Sam Mack so the rivalry had gone away and you hey, guys yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> we'd kissed and made up <laughs> had kissed and made up and he you guys um, were doing drive for Triple M Will and you and he was trying to um, weasel his way onto the air <laughs> every single day yeah. <laughs> on your program yes I remember that yeah yeah <laughs> So had you gotten the call up to make the move from Adelaide to Sydney yeah, for that show? That's right. And so was that because Will Triple M really wanted Will mm-hmm. and they were trying to match him up with a co-host and it was actually Husey who said to Will, why don't you get Limo to do it? You guys are really good mates. He's really funny, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so that was how that came about. How was that time doing that show? I feel as though that show never, ever reached its potential. Mm. Yeah. I feel as though the show started slowly, but really began to find its feet in the second year. And I, I think in the end, at the end of our second year, after we'd been boned, mm. it was a really strong show. How long did you have between the boning and going off air? Like uh, About what? four weeks. Yeah, right. And they gave us the option. They said, you can leave now if you want. And we said, no, we'll stay on air. We're, and it was during that period that I did possibly my favourite radio show ever, where we had had a conversation about when shows get boned, they phone it in. Oh, yeah. So Will and I decided to literally phone it in. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. So Will was in Queen Street Mall in Brisbane. <laughs> I was down the beach at Bondi, literally like <laughs> ankle deep in the water. We were both on our phones. Sam Mack was in the studio. I remember this. And we phoned the entire show in. So guests were coming into the studio <laughs> and going, uh, we're at Will and Limo. <laughs> and Sam goes, they're phoning it in, literally. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. So you guys did that for two years, yeah? Was yeah. it two years? Yeah, yeah, two years. And then when that show finished, did you have down, you had a couple of years off I, before you started doing. I had one year downtime and then moved to Melbourne. To do it with the show with Bridge. And then I got the job at Mix with Bridge. So yeah. in that year downtime, were you doing obviously comedy stuff, but yeah. was there a moment of shit, what's going on, where am I going, what am I doing? A or? little bit, yeah. Mm. Yeah, there was. Because I was living in Sydney. I was never a, Sydney was never a natural fit for me, mm. I don't think. Uh, but I was still doing Before the Game, which is an AFL TV yeah. show. So that was kind of the, gave me a bit of ballast in life. Mm. But yeah, I did have moments where I'm going, oh, am I going to work in radio again? Because I, by now, I really enjoyed radio yeah. and had got to appreciate <laughs> what a fine art form it is. Uh, so I was keen to get back into it. And then I was lucky enough to move to Melbourne and got the job at Mix. So did you make the move to Melbourne just because and then you, and how did that job come I about? I moved to Melbourne because some friends of mine taught me into it, basically. Again, Hughes, he's quite an influential character in my life. Mm. And Justin Hamilton were the two big influences on my move to Melbourne. Yeah. Where was Husey at that point? What was he doing? He was doing breakfast at Nova. Ah, right. Yeah. So I moved to Melbourne just because, and then just loved it straight away. Then Mix got me in to do some guest spots on bits and pieces. uh, And then the job came up. Having the accounting, even though it's not something that you ever wanted to do, have you ever felt like, oh, if this doesn't work, I've always got something else to fall back on? Or were you just like, I'm never going to do that again? No, never. No. Never. So this ever. has to work? This has to work. Because that's never going to be never, my life. That's never, ever going to happen again. Yeah. <laughs> ever. <laughs> I can't even bear to do my own accounting. <laughs> like, I have an accountant. <laughs> yeah, right. Sometimes for some people, I think, I often thought whether if I 
worked a bit more doing something else, it might have provided a bit of stability. But I suppose if you find a passion in this and yeah. you want to do this, it's sort of like, no, I don't really want to do anything else. That's yeah, no, this is I'm accounting, God forbid. I can't I imagine made, you. The thought of it makes me sad. I can't imagine <laughs> you. Um, what about you've done a lot of touring, obviously, and you've done Edinburgh. I've spoken to friends of mine who have done Edinburgh, and it's so big. Yeah. It's Sure, if you're a, you know a big name, you can do well there and stuff. But it can be like you know an actor going to Hollywood, where you're like, yeah, it sounds great because I say I went to LA, but really it was me yeah. going to auditions, never getting auditions, and crying a lot in my one bedroom apartment where I was sleeping on the floor. Um, did you have a good run over there? Did you find it difficult? Was it? Uh, oh, look, it's hard work. Mm. It's a real grind because you are constantly. I mean, your show is an hour. But you spend six or seven hours every day trying to get an audience. Yeah, that's the tough bit. And it wears you down. And then you go out at night. And th- this was when the drinking culture isn't as big these days in comedy. But when yeah. I was in Edinburgh 20 plus years ago, the drinking culture was massive in mm. comedy. So everyone was out every night getting fully boozed. Mm. So you were hung over. You were on the street. You were trying to sell tickets. You were sleeping on someone's floor yeah. during the night. It was hard work, mm. really hard work. And then you'd have sh- – I had shows more than one where I bought everyone in the audience a beer because there was only about four of them. Yeah, right. So the boy can go, this is it. <laughs> all right, I'll go to the bar. I'll get us all a drink. <laughs> Were you doing Brecky Radio at that time? Where did that fit into the timeline? No, so that or? was when I was an accountant. Uh, but I was working. Oh. That was when I was living in London. Oh, actually, that's not bad, I think. Because so that's not as bad. That's actually a good time to do it yeah. when you're sort of starting out. And there weren't that many Aussies there, and I, but I knew a lot of the English comics. So I had a lot of friends there who were going mm. through all the same sort of stuff as me. Why do you think that the culture has changed, you were saying, about the drinking culture? Do you think it's because comedy has become a real business over the last 20 years. Like Mm. I feel like it sort of shifted at one point from being something you did at nights in a bar to, oh, this is the path to breakfast radio or this is the path to. Comedy is definitely a gateway to a bigger career. Mm. And it's it's a gateway into a bigger stand-up career or as you say, a radio or a television career. I think more broadly, people have become more professional. I know bands are the same. Bands don't party like they used to. Mm. And comedians don't party like they used to. I think a big factor for me is that there's more of them. More people are coming into comedy because they can see uh, what a great path it can create. And that natural competitiveness is forcing people to be more professional. That's true. Whereas back 20 years ago, man, after it was just mayhem. But there weren't as many of us. I guess too. There really weren't as many comedians. When you've seen so many people and the formula has been proven so many times, then I guess you get into the business and you go, if I work at this the right way, that could happen to me. But previously, maybe when there were one or two people that were making it through that way, you thought, oh, it's a bit of a... It's a bit of a luck of the draw thing. Yeah, and know. also the, you'd see the big names back in the day. They'd all be Wasted. the ones getting the drunkest. <laughs> and you'd be like, yeah, <laughs> come on. This is how it's done. <laughs> this is how we do it. <laughs> He's successful. Yeah. He's drunken on the bar. What about uh, touring for the troops? I was reading in your bio that you are the number one combat comic. Oh. Is that a bit of bio flourish or is that true? Uh, <laughs> oh, look, I... Oh, I haven't done the maths for a while, so someone could have overtaken me for tours. But at one point, I'd certainly the comedian who'd done more tours mm. than any other comic. What's that like? 
Uh, oh, look, it's amazing. It's really, it's, it's just so much fun. Mm. Such a unique, crazy environment to work in, but so intensely satisfying. To be, I feel like that you're really doing something worthwhile when you do that. Mm. When you do a gig in a pub, you do it just as much for yourself, if not more, than for the audience. It's a fairly selfish pursuit comedy. But when I do those gigs, I really genuinely feel as though I'm doing the gigs for them. Now, I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. But these guys are getting shot at by the Taliban. They're avoiding landmines as they walk down the road. It's a pretty stressful time. Mm. So for them to come in and for us to provide them with... The biggest compliment is when people say, you provided me with two hours of home. Wow. And it's just so nice to be standing in the Afghan desert and have an Aussie say, you took me home for two hours. It's a really beautiful compliment. It just feels feels nice. So that's why I've been dragged back so many times. Or dragged myself back because I love it. Well, it's a fairly... I think everybody likes to have, well, most people like to have a real sense of purpose. Mm. And sometimes this business, there's not a great deal of purpose in it because you sort of, you feel a bit like you're being dragged around where other people want you to go. There's not a huge amount of control. It's easy to second guess yourself, to wonder if you're doing anything. Mm. What am I doing? I don't know if you felt the same, but sometimes, especially when I was in my radio career, I thought... I'm sitting here talking into a mic. Am I am I making a difference here? Like, yeah, am I doing yeah. something? You know, I often f- I've thought about it myself before. Like, and compared it to being caught in a rip mm. when you're swimming, but there's no one on the beach yeah. and there's no one out in the water, <laughs> and you're battling your guts out. You think, what is the point of all of this? I can see calm water over there, yeah, and I can see good stuff and land over there. But I'm battling my guts out; and I'm just not getting anywhere. Yeah, and you always you find yourself a lot looking over your shoulder as well. Mm. So to have those moments of clarity and complete satisfaction are really important. Especially in radio, you're in a studio with your co-host or co-hosts. And your producers are around and you're in an office and you do your show and you have a laugh and you have a good time and then mm. you go home and then you go and do it all again. And you don't realise that there are however many thousand people listening to you every day, setting their watch yeah. by you, waking up, putting the kettle to the, your time, knowing that they have to get on the bus at this time when you say that or you run that competition or whatever. And they've gone through breakups and you know losses yeah. of this, that and the other thing. And you've been there providing that sort of constant hum for them. And it's not really until you go and do like a listener event or if somebody sends in an email or something that you go. Those moments I think are really important and special because it is very easy sometimes to wonder, oh, man, what am I, what am I doing here? <laughs> what is, what is, what is this? What is this? What is this? But then you get those connections with listeners where they go, actually, you mean a lot to me. And you think, yeah. okay, all right, I'm, I'm yeah, doing yeah. something okay, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You do need to be reminded from time to time. Mm. I used to get that a bit in London where you'd finish a gig. And then I'd get it on the tube just by myself. Like, so you go from a crowd yeah. of 400 people, then you're just sitting there by yourself going, what am I, what is, <laughs> aren't I meant to be some sort of, how do I, you go from that to that really Yeah, quickly. quickly. Yeah. And it's very weird because the mm. life that you lead in show business is odd. It's odd. You do yeah. odd things that, yeah, you, you know, really that you s- the, that are a part of your job that are just weird. And then you'll have these sort of strange moments where you're on the bus and you've just come from a gig of 400 people. And you're just like, what is happening? What is happening? <laughs> where, where am I going? Um, so I can imagine that's a roundabout way to get back to the idea of 
a heightened version of that listener email, I can imagine, would be standing in front of a bunch of troops who feel like yeah, totally. you're doing something special for them and that's yeah. a moment. I think those moments, apart from all the fun of it and everything, but that's mm. something that I think if you need to keep you in the game too. 100%. Mm. And it's just so worthwhile. And they're, and they're so grateful for it as well. Mm. You know, when you do those pub gigs and... I was at a gig, re- I was yeah. at a gig recently. It's a, a couple pashing at the bar. <laughs> you know, there's people just walking in and out. And you're on stage going, what's the point? What am I doing here? What am here? I doing here? <laughs> but, you know, you do those gigs and people are so grateful. Yeah. And they don't just thank you on the night. They thank you forever. Yeah. <laughs> so now if I bump into someone who has been in the, our defence force or mm. is, they always say to me, thanks so much for the work you've done for our troops. Mm. All of them. Like I can see someone today and I guarantee they will say to me, Thanks so much for all the work you've done. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. On a perhaps at the other end of the spectrum note, you were a Guinness World Record holder for the <laughs> most jokes told in an hour. Uh, that is true. For five minutes though, how long did you have that? Because didn't they give you? Didn't they give it back to the bloke who won it before? Yeah, they did. They did. <laughs> so uh, it, this was a weird thing. I and I just I never cared about this record, and I wish it was never on my bio. But people, <laughs> when they introed me, would always bring it up. At events and whatever. I did a show about the Guinness Book of Records. Right. Called My Goodness, My Guinness. Because I was obsessed with the book as a kid. Mm -hmm. As a lot of kids were. And as promotion for that show in Brundle Mall, I said, why don't I break the Guinness World Record for jokes in an hour? Which I did. But I invited no one from Guinness. And it was purely a stunt to bring attention to my show. Right. A year later, I did the show again at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. So again, it's because it was really effective in Adelaide as a stunt. But this time I did it on Rove. Rove covered it. Right. So I was at the front of the town hall. Damien Callanan was hosting the crosses to me. Rove kept cutting back to me during the hour. How many jokes has he told? Is he nearing the record? And I broke the record there. But again, I invited no one from Guinness and I never put it in because I didn't care. So then two years later, I get a call from Channel 7 who have got a TV show called Guinness World Records. And they say, hey, Limo, you've done this joke thing. Do you want to do it again for our TV show? And I thought, well, it's going to be on Channel 7. I've done it before. Yeah, why not? I'll do it. So this time it's official. So I go to the Rhino Room in Adelaide. I prepare all my jokes again. And every joke has to be laughed at to be included. So I had four fake laughers in the audience. (laughs) So if you watch the footage back, you can hear people going, ah. Nah. <laughs> Through the hour, right? Actually, that's great that they have to be laughed at to be included. Yeah, that's yeah. A re- so there's all, that's there's really all these good. rules. But mm. one of the rules is that you could have cue cards with 20 individual words on them. Oh. As kind of reminders. To jog your memory because you weren't allowed to do them with a script. Correct, yeah. Right. Anyway, so I do that. I get in the Guinness Book of Records. So I think I'm physically in the 2009 maybe or 2008 Guinness Book of Records. Mm-hmm. And then I just forgot about it. And I, I honestly never cared about it at all. And then this thing came up where I got a call from Chortle, the comedy website, saying, oh, they've rejected your record and it's gone back to Tim Vine. Why did they reject it? Uh, you know what? Did I, they find I, I out never, about your four I never, laughers? I never, <laughs> I never followed up. I reckon it might have something to do with the cue cards. But to be completely honest, it should go to Tim Vine because my jokes were just shitty jokes I got off the internet. Like... A pie walks into a bar and the barman says, sorry, we don't serve food here. So they were just all, it gets back to my ability for remembering (laughs) jokes to just bring this thing full circle. Yes. And Tim Vine did 499 jokes. They were all his. Oh, wow. And he recited them all without cue cards. Oh, okay. So he deserves the record and he should have the record. Right. And I'm more than happy 
for him to have, for him to have the record. But now it but is forever on your bio. It is forever <laughs> on my bio. I'll be cursed by the bloody Guinness Book of Records. That'll teach you for doing it three times. Uh, yeah, you know? I really should have said no. I was tempted to tell the lure of the television. Uh, what about the acting? You've done quite a bit of acting here and there. You're acting in Utopia. You've done a bit of working dog stuff no. mostly. So again, shall I tell you another story about something just falling in my lap? Oh, for God's sakes. All right, piss everybody off again. Go on, yep. <laughs> so... I was hosting the breakfast show on Mix in Melbourne and we got Jane Kennedy in for an interview about, it was one of Jane's cookbooks and, you know, we love Jane, she's hilarious and we have a really great chat with her and then Jane leaves and now I had no idea at the time that Jane was casting the movie Any Questions for Ben Mm -hmm. and then Jane just got back in touch with me and said, hey, I reckon you'd be really good for a role in the film. Oh, what a fair radio conversation. I said, I'd love to do it. (laughs) And then that... Rolled into Utopia. <laughs> don't shake Lambert. your head at me like that. <laughs> and, don't, and, and, don't, don't tell me life's about setting goals. <laughs> life's about waiting until shit falls in your lap. <laughs> Please tell me you at least turned up on the first day of a shooting for any questions for Ben, didn't get pissed the night before and then just wake up at 11 a.m. I, I did turn up on time for any questions for Ben. Utopia, however. Oh, sakes. <laughs> get a load of this. Oh, okay. limo. <laughs> We're shooting a pilot. Now, my character, Jim, in the pilot, only had two scenes and I think maybe three or four lines. It was Mm -hmm. a fairly small role in the pilot. I had a basal cell carcinoma on this side here. You might be able to see a tiny scar there. Mm. Oh, yeah. Uh, Which is like a non-threatening cancer. Loads of people have them. It's no big deal. Yet they can sit there forever Mm. or you can just cut them out. And I went to a skin dude and I said, what do you reckon? He said, yeah, let's cut it out. And I said to him, look... I'm shooting a pilot. This is a Monday. I said, I'm shooting a pilot on Thursday. If you do this, is that going to look weird or is there going to be an issue with that? And he said, no, it'll be fine. You'll hardly notice it. I said, okay, well, let's cut it out. Anyway, cuts it out, puts eight stitches in it. Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) You're getting something cut off your face. What do you mean? So I turn up. (laughs) So I turn up with these stitches in my face. Anyway. We were able to put a bit of skin-coloured tape over it, but you can still see it. But, Rob... When you turned up like that, were they just like, mate, I mean, <laughs> this wasn't in the script? <laughs> they're a bunch of very good people. And <laughs> they if that was how they felt, they certainly didn't give it away to me. There may have been they're conversations behind backstage. the scenes. <laughs> and Rob, God love him, I said to Rob Sitch, I said, Rob, I'm so sorry about this. I honestly thought, you know... And I said, like, I'm an idiot. As if, as you say, mm. you're getting a hole cut in your face, mate. And Rob was great. He just said, it's fine. That's totally something your character would have. Oh, great. Your, your, your character would totally, I don't know, fall off a push bike or something and get that. He goes, we'll just write in one quick little line to address it and then we'll just move on. So there's a tiny line, if you watch it back, where Rob's character asks me something about it and I say, ah, oh, don't worry about it. And then we just go on with the scene. And that's how they fixed you not realising that cutting something out of your face would give you stitches. Yep. <laughs> You've had it too easy, mate. You've really had it too easy. Did you play yourself on Neighbours once? Yes, yeah. Was that weird? Well, I was just a stand-up comic in a in a club. But were you playing Lima from Lima. the telly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you, is there a moment where you go... I think I'm a bit of a thing. If somebody <laughs> asks you to play yourself on something, I reckon that would be weird. Look, if you look, if you read the list of alumni 
who've played themselves on Neighbours. <laughs> Who are some of It's them? a pretty impressive <laughs> list until you get to Lemo. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I thought that they had like really big. Like the, uh, the, names, are, the names are huge and none of them are coming to my mind Ed now. Sheeran has yeah, been on Neighbours. Ed, Ed, Ed Sheeran, for example. And people are in that kind of Ed Sheeran. Milieu. Yeah. 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 And then there's and old then mate. There's <laughs> With stitches on his face. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think is the best and the worst thing about the business? I think the I'm gonna say the worst thing for I think the worst thing is the uncertainty. That is definitely the worst thing. Is no you could get fired at any moment from any of these jobs. You know, and you're always you're never fully comfortable. No one's ever completely comfortable, I don't think. What do you think, just to delve into that for a bit, I've often wondered about whether it would benefit the business if there was a bit more openness from that perspective or whether that keeps people hungry for it because you are all at a certain point professionals. Mm. You understand that no job is forever. Yeah. But there's not the push towards that mentoring kind of thing that happens in some other industries. There seems to be much more, let's keep a lot behind closed doors. I don't know whether opening those doors up and being a bit more honest and saying, look, this is only going to happen for another six months for you and then we're going to, I don't know whether that would be a more beneficial approach, but. Look, I don't think, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, for an industry that sacked so many people, you'd think they'd get better at it. (laughs) Because normally people get better at things they do a lot, Uh, but I'm not sure what the perfect sacking is Mm. you know Mm. i mean the perfect sacking is people quitting before they're sacked yeah that's true that's the perfect you know you unless you set up a deal where you say okay here's a two-year contract if your ratings are below this level Mm. in two years time you're you're not coming back yeah that's perhaps the most open and honest way but you don't want to be defined just by ratings though yeah exactly as a radio show because there are so many factors that influence ratings like i've been in radio meetings before where they've said all right, what's your ratings goal? Mm-hmm. And I've said, well, why don't you go out and ask the marketing department? Yeah. yeah. Because <laughs> we're going to do a really good show. Yeah. But that is going to be a bigger influence. I mean, we're obviously, I mean, I'm being a smart ass to a degree, but I think there's a good element of truth to that. But I've always wondered, apart from working the best you can to do the best show possible, mm. no matter what the numbers come in at, if you know you are giving it 150% and trying to do, what yeah. more can you do outside of that? Well, there's not, yeah. There's, there's not, not a huge amount you no. can do. And the idea that you can physically adjust those numbers by doing, oh, well, we'll put one more phone topic in there and then <laughs> yeah, do another yeah. competition at five past eight. There's yeah. very little control you have over these things that basically determine your future. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's a lot going on at a radio station that influences the success of, the various shows. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes it's, have you put enough billboards on the main street of the town we do the show in? Like, you know, it can be something as simple as that because people, when they're filling out the books, are like, oh, what's top of my mind? What have I seen a lot? What yeah, have yeah. I, you know, yeah. who do I know in the market? So there's a million different reasons. What there about is, So that's, so the uncertainty, I think, is the worst thing about the industry. And the best thing, I think, is the freedom to do pretty much whatever you want and I find that's certainly true of stand-up comedy Mm. Uh, it's pretty true of radio and it's also true probably to a lesser degree of television probably in that order stand-up radio TV I can get up on a stage and say whatever I want yeah Uh, you know it's just great it's just a glorious freedom in that 
Can't do that to your accounting clients. No, exactly. So just that being the master of your own destiny. It's very addictive. Um, Right, final five questions before you have to go and uh, get ready for the Friday project. Uh, Your biggest regret? Um, Not quitting accounting sooner. I should have quit sooner. I guess when you know it's worked out, you go, ooh, what if? I really should have just gone earlier. But maybe if you'd gone earlier, it wouldn't have worked out this way. Maybe you might have. But could have set me on a very different path. Mm. Yeah. Uh, your dream gig? I'm pretty close to doing a couple of them, to be honest. I mm. mean, I love Utopia. That's a fantastic, super fun, amazing television show to be on. Uh, I love doing Fridays in the Project. It's really cool. I love chatting to the kids, my kids' chats. Oh, yeah, that's great. Those are great. That's really fun. Maybe if I was going to add something to that would be, you know, I still would love to do some sort of sports show on TV. I thought you were going to say, I want to do sports like I want to play. And I was yeah. like, I think it's oh, look, a bit I late, still, mate. I still want to play cricket for Australia. But. <laughs> you keep dreaming. Yeah, keep yeah. those fingers crossed. Uh, is there a big idea you've got that you've yet to get up? Uh, well, look, I've got a couple of film ideas. Ah, yes. Yeah, good. everyone's got a film idea it's that good, I'm though. sitting on. One's a short film and one's a feature. And they're both, I think, think they're both really cool. Have you uh, started typing away at them or are uh, they still Well, well just... the short I have written and I really love it. It's such a great idea. But short films are a bit of a, they're real passion projects because yeah. you're not going to make any money out of them and they're going to cost you a lot of money. So, True. yeah. Uh, and the feature uh, I would really love to write. Uh, if you weren't doing this as in in show business, what would you be doing? Well, I'd probably be an accountant. <laughs> yeah, true, true, yeah. Um, and finally, your advice to people wanting to get into the business? Uh, just do not set any goals and wait for it to fall in your lap. <laughs> Don't you dare! Don't you dare say that! Hey, it worked for me. It worked for me. It can work for you. All right, fine. You know what we've had so over the course of this show, there's been so many good bits of advice that I'm happy to let that one stand. Just wait for it to happen. Just, it's like, what was that book that Oprah promoted heavily? Oh, the Secret. The Secret. Stick it on a vision board there and look go. at it and it's yours. And just don't do anything. Wait for it to fall in your lap. There you go. Let's see how that works for the yeah. people listening. Thank you so much for joining me, Lee. Thank Mate. you, Rach. Thanks for listening to You've Got to Start Somewhere. Thanks. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes and keep up to date, head to you've got to start somewhere.com. Thanks so much for joining me for my chat with the lovely Limo. I am going to get myself in a YouTube rabbit hole to try and find that red face's footage. I hope it exists. Next week, I'm going to be sitting down with journalist and newsreader Chris Barth, who has by now, of course, managed to nail her newsreader voice. But that can be one of the toughest things to work out early on. And she talks about the moment when she realised she hadn't quite nailed it. I think it was after Peter Meekin screwed his face up at me and he was sort of a senior executive at seven at the time and so he, he gets this look on his face, he, sc- he squints his face up, he crosses his arm, he leans back in his chair and he goes, you read news like the Duchess who smelled a turd. <laughs> this is a true story. <laughs> I looked at him and said, do you have any constructive criticism, Peter? <laughs> I hope you'll join me next week for that chat. If you are brand new to this podcast, then please jump back into some of the earlier episodes and check out some of the previous chats. And if you are a fan and you are back here for season two, thank you for sticking with me. Uh, If you have not yet left a review for the show, I would love you to do that on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. And I will see you next week for the next episode of You've Got to Start Somewhere.